So these are the same issues that were brought up in 2018. And I thought it it's a very valuable topic and why not just talk about this and write a book about it and provide value to other organizations and consultants and other continuous improvement professionals. everybody to Equality Podcast Season 2. We are happy to have with us today Valerie Hendricks, business owner of Dynamic Empire Consulting and author of Streamlining Function and Value, available on Amazon in ebook. Paperback is about to break. Brand new book, which we'll be talking about today. Valerie, how are you? I am doing well. Thank you, John, for having me. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm really excited that you can join us today. Looking forward to the book and also hear a little bit about your business. Uh, you're in Springfield, Missouri. So tell our audience a little bit about who you are and what you're doing and what life is like these days. Yes, uh, basically what has gotten me started to write this book is uh, since the economy has been completely different, um, I actually did value analysis and value engineering um, back in 2008 during the recession. So um, I saw a lot of basically the same same issues that organizations are currently having where they're having uh, they're struggling with um, uh, costs being higher uh, inflation increases and also they're dealing with issues with labor shortages and also material shortages so these are the same issues that were brought up in 2018 and I thought it it's a very valuable topic and why not just talk about this and write a book about it and provide value to other organizations and consultants and other continuous improvement professionals so that they can take these issues, these problems that the companies are having and be able to solve them in the, in the same way that um, a lot of companies such as um, GE, Toyota, uh, GMC, the U.S. government uses the same th same um, value management strategies to create higher value of products and services at a lower cost. So this is exactly why um, I went in ahead and produced this book is to provide that value for organizations, consultants, and continuous improvement professionals. Yeah, I love it. So um, I think it's a really poignant observation that, um, you know, kind of what we saw in 2020, everyone was using the word unprecedented, right? <laughs> um, but kind of not, you know, um, we have seen the same forces, maybe in different ratios or different intensities, but the same kind of market forces at play. And 2008, you know, comes to mind, obviously, right. for that. Um, so great timing. And um, I really appreciate, you know, kind of your perspective of, hey, wait a minute, I can help right now. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yes. Awesome. So the value equation, I'm trying to remember back to my MBA days because, um, you know, I don't use it very often, but it's like outcomes over costs. Does that sound right? Um, so basically what I'm more considered about is a functionality value where you have um, your input uh, plus your value equals your function of 
your functionality. So when we talk about functionality, we want to also analyze that functions. And whenever we want to break down like our components or small processes so that we are able to really analyze um, the cost per function. And we can see like, as we break this down, we have um, what we call our basic uh, functions, which are our main priority functions. But we also have a huge list that creates uh, secondary functions that, that are independent to the, the basic function, the main function. So, and we, are, we actually see that 80% of costs are in these secondary functions where the primary function has, you know, maybe 20 to 15% of the cost. So when we analyze this information, we can see, oh my gosh, we are spending this much on this secondary function. And why are we spending that money? Is there a better way to actually do this? Can we, can we take some costs out by um, making, a, making a, a small dimension change? And there's many, many ways that we can actually look at um, the process and when we look at functionality and analyze it in our value analysis process. So I hope yeah. that answers the question exactly. Yeah, no, good conversation um, path to go down. So a couple of things. First, the word function, right, um, is a challenge for me when I'm talking with um, business leaders, right? Engineers is a little different, uh, but the whole language thing, uh, sometimes function is understood as a role within business. Uh, sometimes it's understood as a piece of value chain. And in the strictest sense, a function is a value creation step that has a single input and a single output. So when you're looking at the value chain, specifically around functionality. Are you breaking it down to the point of single input, single output? How does that look? Yeah, so basically I think the easiest way to look at it is if we look at it like a very small subcomponents or like sub-assemblies um, so that we can break it down even easier. We also look at, um, let's take all of the electronical wiring together um, so that we can understand the functionality of why we have this wiring harness or, or um, maybe in, for example, like a pencil or a pen, you know, we can break this down. We can find that we have probably close to 20, 20 parts in this mechanism itself. And so if we break down each and every single one and we figure out exactly why that component in a basic functionality, it would be basically two rights is the, is a, is the main uh basic function and so we have all of these secondary functions such as the spring inside of here that that um, detracts the pin as as I click it so that we can write so um, that's exactly does that get that to what you're questioning yeah so to go along with the uh, pen looking at the pen you know we also have the rubber grip which is you know Kind of, kind of affects the functionality. Um, I suspect that when they engineered this pen, they weren't too concerned with how grippy it was. I think it has more of a marketing thing. Same thing with the chrome tip. You know, that's purely aesthetic. So there's 
you know, elements to product presentation that go into the final, um, the final thing. And, and maybe a different example, um, let's say you were manufacturing, um, you know, coffee makers, right? The ultimate functionality of that product is to produce coffee for consumption. But how much work and effort goes into packaging it so that it doesn't break and shipping it so it gets to the distributor? Um, it really, with my experience in the appliance world, like the packaging and shipping is a higher cost than the manufacturing. Yes, yes, it's definitely true. And a lot of part of, part of the process of value engineering is that um, we can always create a better product and then it's continuously. So we always come right back at the product at a certain amount of time because technology changes, economy changes, the, the customer needs and demands are always constantly changing. So with these changes, we can always come back and uh, create a better product or service as far as when it comes to the shipping part of it. Yes, that is definitely one of the, the components that we do look at as far as when it comes to uh, the cost reductions in, uh, in value analysis, value engineering as well. Yeah, so that would be, you know, one of those, hey, you know, this isn't the main functionality, but it's part of the value chain. Like, it, it does have to get to the consumer at some point, right? Yes, yes. And that's like a small component. Like I told you earlier, we do break them down into different components. The shipping, the shipping materials is definitely going to be a separate component within um, basically the, the, the product itself. So we do definitely look at... Um, the shipping materials being used if there's a more effective way. Um, also, you know, um, um, in different materials, we can use um, different angles that are maybe more cost effective and, and actually provide more support as well. So there's a lot of components that we can use to help design a better uh, shipping container. Yeah, so value engineering, main functionality, sub-processes, I guess one of the big things that a lot of companies are struggling with. So, um, of course, I do consulting, operational excellence consulting, um, but I also run a factory for a couple of uh, friends of mine, and we've had to change our sourcing. Um, and even, you know, when, when we talk about the cost of inputs and you know, offshoring and the kind of the global space. What a lot of folks don't realize is the supplies are so pinched, we now have to manufacture it ourselves. The problem is the market won't bear the cost of manufacturing it ourselves. And I think an example everybody can kind of uh, understand is if all of a sudden Apple had to create their own phones here stateside, uh, the cost of starting that up and the cost of building a factory and hiring engineers to replace Foxconn, which is an established business, um, your iPhone would cost 5,000 bucks and nobody's right. going to pay that, right? Mm -hmm. So in this current climate with, you know, kind of like significant restrictions to inputs, um, how has that really affected the analysis, especially in terms of 
uh, safety stock, absorbing variants, you know, buffer, that sort of thing. Oh, um, along with that, we want to remove, um, when we want to look at suppliers, we have an actual option to look at suppliers. Uh, we don't want to take the first option of going with a supplier that has the lowest cost. So we actually will have a, a separate list uh, of ways to connect with the supplier. They have to have one, you know, a good reputation, um, good quality standards. Um, one thing that we want to realize is that we want uh, um, suppliers to have innovation and provide innovation, not only to themselves, but they can also provide innovation towards us. Um, one thing about it in value analysis, value engineering is that we don't always have to have the answers is that we can resource the answers and have suppliers who are actually more knowledgeable uh, about these materials, technologies, and systems than we can be. So in together, we have to be very in sync, very in together and have like a, almost like a community towards our, our, our suppliers, um, as well as, you know, um, keep very high effective communication towards one another. Um, and as far as, you know, as thinking, um, going out and finding suppliers that currently help with this process, um, I think it's definitely a way that we need to look at suppliers that are, are closer to help provide um, the transportation issues that are constantly occurring. Um, you know, we can move this value analysis, value engineering process that is currently working for our organization and do what Toyota did with their system and teach their suppliers how to use it, how to monetize it, how to make it most effective for their operations and organizations. And that is basically how I believe that you synergize an organization to be uh, uniquely specific to your supplier. So basically organizations can reduce a lot of the supply chain risk by partnering with innovative partners who are thinking ahead and mm -hmm. have some ideas in the pipeline about how they can improve. Is that fair? Yeah, I do definitely believe that for sure. And looking at the, you know, the organizations that have great uh, connections with their suppliers that uh, they have minimal risk towards um, leveraging issues of um, supply loss in itself and quality issues and um, issues that would create um, displeasurable issues within their organization. Yeah, so one thing that I've noticed is when companies partner with the lowest cost supplier, they've sort of cut all of the uh, adaptability of that supplier out. So when hard times happen, the best case scenario is the supplier can come back and say, I can raise prices and keep getting you stuff. But in a lot of cases, the supplier even goes out of business, but stops serving as a supplier because they just don't have the margins to handle the market variance. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a, a really good point about, you know, being shrewd in your business partnerships. Um, you know, a, an example that I sometimes use 
is you're having a, a fancy dinner and you know you're having the president over or something like that you know and everything is set you know you're good to go um but you picked the the least expensive caterer well the least expensive caterer drives a 25 year old hoopy that decides not to start today and then the caterer doesn't show up and if the caterer doesn't show up the dinner doesn't happen the next thing you know you're you know ordering mcdonald's or something like that right um and so sometimes organizations can lose sight of the fact that these are critical inputs to their final value creation um and i tell the story sometimes you know not too often because i do have a small ego um but is, is it okay if uh, she says hi to the internet? <laughs> yeah, I think she's been on a little bit. <laughs> you want to say hi? Hi. Hi. <laughs> well, I am uh, thrilled to, you know, not just be having a business conversation with you, but, you know, to see your, you know, love and dedication, you know, as a mom. I think it's amazing that we live in the kind of space where people can do that. You know. Um, yes, yes. So beautiful, yeah, uh, I think, beautiful daughter. I think this um, this era is going to have adaptability towards working at home and having an understanding that there is family life at home, even if you have to work. Yeah, and and frankly, I'm glad that the make believe fake plastic corporate masks are finally going away. Like. <laughs> Dude, we have families. And by the way, I don't come to work because I love your corporation. I go to work because of my family. You know? right. um, so I'm I'm pleased to see that humans are we're starting to be more open about being human. You know, mm -hmm. um, I think I think that trend is really gonna gonna help us. You know, run run good businesses into the future. Um, but speaking about the um, critical inputs, right? And so uh, often when I'm examining, so the language that I use is sometimes a little bit different because I actually went to school for software engineering uh, before I figured out that I can't sit behind a computer all day. Um, it's just not my thing. But I adopted a lot of frameworks for thinking, you know, for my software engineering time. So I'll talk about objects a lot and in, software an object can have multiple inputs um, and typically will have one output if it's engineered properly um, so it's different from a function um, which technically has a single input and a single output so i will look at objects in the business which is a sort of self-contained part of the process that has multiple inputs um, and typically only two outputs a physical output and an information output we have to keep sight of both of those. But for those inputs, um, I'll distinguish between critical inputs, which is you have to have this or you can't create value, and then non-critical inputs, which is something we can easily improvise. Um, you know, go down the store to Staples and buy printer paper, you're good, right? Uh, that sort of thing. And I tell this story, you know, not too frequently because I do have an ego, but I shut down a tier one automotive uh, supply plant one time because we ran out of UPS labels. Um, so, you know, but that's a critical input, you know, mm -hmm. I, I we utilize UPS LTL 
you know, as a carrier, and by the way, the penalty for being late on these deliveries, you know, is ridiculous, like you could fund a small country, and you have to have the labels, you know. Um, so we didn't make that mistake again, but it was a great lesson in, you know, if you want to have resilience and um, repeatability in your business, you got to know what your critical inputs are and don't run out of UPS labels. Sure. Chasing excellence is a good book. It has all kinds of uses. In fact, I was chasing some excellence with it today. But why sit over that? Right. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Um, I do want to back up and make a, a small point about suppliers. Um, I know we were talking earlier about suppliers, but I do want to make a, a small comment about suppliers is that we don't have to necessarily always give 100% of a contract to suppliers that maybe we can find a supplier that is small outreaching, but they have uh, developing processes that we can actually utilize throughout time. And so maybe we can uh, optimize and only give uh, a small supporting percentage of 30%. As they grow, we can also increase that contract as well towards that new supplier who is obviously going to help out and provide services. And that's not just great um, for you, but it's also great in case that your major supplier has issues and cannot provide for you, now you have a backup supplier to go along with that as well. So I just wanted to point that out right quick because I know we were talking about suppliers and it was on my mind. Yeah, I love that. And additionally, you know, there's there's some companies that do this. I think uh, Toyota is probably the famous one for doing this. But um, if you can begin a relationship with a supplier while they are small, um, as an organization, you can usually, and it, it depends on the industry, but particularly in a production environment, you have some idea of your growth curve. And it's sort of like, um, if you look at a pie and this supplier has 10%, the problem is that pie is gonna be bigger next year. And so 10% is bigger, right? And so if you have a supplier that um, is growing, then they can support your growth. If you have that supplier that, you know, they're in the peak of their uh, business development cycle, you know, they're over here, um, they usually don't have the capacity to expand or if, if they want to, they're going to have to stop serving another customer uh, in order to support you. And of course that, that knife can cut both ways, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's kind of like the, um, uh, what's the name, uh, JT Wright, um, his learning curve process where he analyzed, uh, uh, I guess it was continuous improvement or, or learning curve um, theory. And he, you know, of course, he looked at the process, your beginning of your process, you're not going to do very well, you're not going to be very quickly. But over time, you're going to actually develop the necessary skills to actually improve and usually improve over time by 80%, which is an amazing margin. And that's what we need to consider when we look at new suppliers is that their, their efforts are, are um, slow currently, but they're going to actually increase and grow over time. 
yeah, and if you can harness that, you know, in a relationship, that can be really beneficial. Yeah. Awesome. So let's talk about your book for a little bit, Streamlining Function and Value. Mm-hmm. Tell me about, tell me as much as you can while still forcing people to go out and buy the book. <laughs> Well, I definitely talked a lot about it during this episode, and I do appreciate being able to talk about it. Uh, but um, basically, you know, what the whole process is, is is, is really amazing towards helping your organization um, be a better organization in your products and your services. We're actually trying to figure out how to be better to our customers and provide better services and removing non-value added products and services in our products and and be, just be a better company. And this is one way to do it is we look at the value analysis. And there's a, there's quite a few steps that go along with this. But um, we want to first, you know, look at the information uh, provided, like uh, um, what are the blueprints? We want to ask a ton of questions about, about this product. Like, what, why is it serving? What is its purpose? Can we make this better? How how can we make this better? Is it, um, can we remove this item? Can we um, actually re- remove this dimension? Um, and I don't know if uh, a lot of organizations are aware of this, but whenever you set in certain dimensions, is there's actually a cost per dimension to keep that dimension. Is it really actually needed? Does, can we create a product that has a 90 degree angle. Do we really need to have that 90 degree angle in that uh, design? So we look at a ton of questions and we do the function analysis after that. And in which, um, again, we look, we put together what the basic function is compared to um, your the uh, non-basic, and then we put a value to each and every single item of that. And then we, then we get together as a team and we, we find different ways of actually uh, brainstorming and finding different ideas towards alternatives of this uh, subassembly or part. And this process, you know, can take anywhere between a week to two weeks, depending on if we need to, move, to go back and look or or whatnot, but it's it's a process that does actually work, and it's worked for a lot of organizations. And it's not very much talked about in uh, continuous improvement uh, culture. Um, I'm not sure why, but I'm out here to promote it, to give I give people more um, education towards it. So, um, did I miss anything? No, that's good. So, so if I buy your book, mm-hmm. I should be able to come away with a good idea of how to streamline function and value, what that means, and, and start thinking a little bit differently about my product or service offerings. Right. Yes. And maybe unlock a different avenue for continuous improvement. Yes, I, I believe that this is not... Um, most people think of continuous improvement. They think of a TPS or a lean, but this is in combination with, it's not against, it's not a replacement of, it is a combination with, it flows with 
lean or TPS. Um, so it's not something that is going to replace either one of those, it's not to replace agile, it's not to replace um, change management or any systems, is to function along with those continuous improvement methodologies. So streamlining function and value is a methodology for changing the equation, much like the five wastes of lean, eliminating those wastes in the physical movement of products through a factory is a methodology for changing that equation, right? Right, right, right. We want to um, put a value towards functions. Um, either the functions either uh, material-wise or they're, they're uh, function-wise, and then we want to remove those non-value-added costs that our, our customers do not want to pay and that's what basically the, the value analysis, value engineering does during the process. Yeah, so you mentioned the 90 degree angle, for example, mm -hmm. um, accidental and then sometimes intentional overprocessing, right? Yes. So I was talking to a uh, executive one time, handset device um, company, and he said our new aluminum case for our phone, you could sit on it with 800 pounds and it won't bend. And he was kind of making a dig at another company when he said this. And I just looked at him and I said, how many 800 pound people are you expecting <laughs> to sell your phone to, right? Uh, so. May, you know, maybe not like the most charismatic approach on my part, it could have been a little more political. Um, right. He just laughed and he was right. He, he was like, I, I get it. I, I know what you're trying to say here, right? Right, right. Um, kind of makes you wonder how much cost went into uh, saving, you know, saving that phone from 800 pounds when how many times does, does it get ran over or, or right. yes, yeah. 800 pounds get put on that phone. And sometimes there's, um, so that's what I call intentional overprocessing. Uh, that is kind of related to like the dynamic between sales, marketing, and operations, right? And so sometimes um, it, it's an accepted additional cost. So you'll have sunglasses companies that advertise 100% UV, A, B, and C blockage. Um, that's so that they can advertise that. Now, in the real world, if you're not like a, a sport fisherman or you know a, a boat captain, something like that, you don't need that level of protection in your sunglasses. Um, but it allows you to to market that, right? So there's some intentional over-engineering, like a gorilla can sit on my phone and won't bend the case, right? <laughs> um, and but then there's also incidental or accidental. Um, in my experience, it's um, typically related to the evolution of product design, and we've always done it this way. Mm -hmm. um, I'm thinking of a particular product with a specific manufacturer that I won't name for the sake of the, you know, the podcast, um, but they had a process for wiring breadboards that were going to end up in a, a finished product. Um, and there was a breadboard that would come in here and then there were like five or six uh, wiring harnesses that the operator could choose and then the 
uh, soldering of the leads to that was done uh, semi-manually. So they had a soldering gun that was automatic, but they had to grab two handles, you know, for safety or whatever. You had all their tools were two-handed and and solder the, the leads, and then it would move on down the line. Um, well, the breadboard had more connections than necessary on it because many years ago, it was used for multiple products, and they had stopped producing those other products. Um, and so now it was just unnecessary. And the uh, electronic pathways were copper, of course, laid down, which, you know, copper is not exactly cheap. Um, right. And so it turned out that they could save like 0.02 cents per breadboard. But when you produce 150 million of these products a year, uh, that's not nothing, right? Uh, so that was an, a good example of accidental overprocessing, mm -hmm. right? Yes, I understand that. Um, I worked in quality and um, I went to a, a new, new organization where I was a quality engineer and looking at uh, some of the signs, um, everything was uh, critical to quality at that time. And I'm like, we can't build this to critical quality. If everything's critical, nothing's critical. Mm -hmm. And so it took a while for them to, to, Grassman understanding that we can't make everything critical uh, critical at that point because if everything's critical, what is what is the definition of critical then? Yeah, you know that's a great that's a great call out. Um, I remember in my uh, logistics career working at a very large um, regional distribution center, and they had this. Um, program set up where if an order was passed due by, I think it was 30 minutes, it became a hot order. And every day, 70 to 80% of the orders were hot. So, you know, that was a, that was a um, intense conversation with senior leadership. Like these aren't hot anymore. Your target is wrong. Right. If, if the process outcomes are the 70 to 80 percent are 30 minutes late, then your targets are just wrong. You need to adjust it by 30 minutes. You know, start there. You know, um, so not honestly, it wasn't very well received, but it was a good example of signal to noise ratio. You know, if 70 percent of your stuff gets the signal, it's not signal anymore. It's just noise. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I remember I was at the hospital at the emergency room several years ago with a uh, life-threatening condition and got put in a you know hospital bed and had all these monitors and stuff strapped up and uh, in the middle of the night I pulled out my lead and so it started beeping you know uh -huh. I've got no pulse or whatever uh, it took like seven minutes for a nurse to actually show up because they know, you know they've been working there so long they just hear these beeps over and over and over and their calculus is well he was fine he's in recovery i'm sure he rolled over in his sleep and pulled his lead out which is what had happened but that didn't make it not disturbing to you know kind of be in the er you know on the bed and uh 
like, oh, well, I guess if I really do lose my pulse, I'm just dead because. (laughs) 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 But we do that in business, too, where, you know, we have these, um, you know, whatever red light conditions or something similar. And we see that signal and it just doesn't mean anything anymore because we're getting bombarded with that signal all day. Mm hmm. Yeah, I think uh, major obstacles um, is understanding the root cause of analysis towards why those issues are occurring. And we need to um, basically find which ones are the most critical uh, issues to really fix first. And that's, that seems like um, something that would be interesting to see and fix. Yeah, I've, I've worked with a couple of orgs where um, the process was not under control. And so, you know, statistical process control kind of didn't work. I, mm-hmm. We had to get the process under control first. Um, but what we did was we semi-arbitrarily picked a target condition that represented like 95% of performance. So, you know, the curve looks like this the process is out of control and we're like well i can only solve like two things a week like really solve them and so we're going to set a line up here where you're only peeking over it like twice a week and then you're going to root cause that and fix it you know and then the next week the peaks are you know a little it's a little less peaky right i think it was about six months you know Mm -hmm. every month we lowered that line a little bit until we got to the point where hey, we've got six weeks in a row where the, the process outcomes are demonstrating stability, we can actually, you know, utilize SPC at this point, right? Well, that's good. That's good. Yeah, sometimes, uh, sometimes the hardest thing for me personally is just coming to terms with um, balancing um, where the organization is right now with uh, rigorous analysis. And mm-hmm. the truth is that not, not every company is, you know, has process stability to where you can utilize some more um, fancy tools, you know, and really dig in. Um, you got to start with the basics, you know. I try to kind of assess that sort of first thing now. Um, and it can be challenging, you know, a lot. Of, I shouldn't say a lot, but, you know, some orgs, like, they don't even know, you know, they don't know what a process control chart is. They don't think in those terms. Um, And so they don't have any data, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, and um, I'm sure it probably takes your your line of work way far back and probably have to start with um, your standards, creating standards, creating work processes, and to start from the, the very beginning, I'm sure having those types of issues, you know, you got to go back to the basics and back to the beginning and, and uh, just start from there. Yeah, definitely. Um, and also I think related, I was just having this conversation with Jake the other day, but uh, especially in the lean consulting world and to be fair, you know, we don't at zoom operational excellence. We don't um, market ourselves as lean consultants. Uh, we market ourselves as operational excellence consultants, right? We help you win right now. We get the business pressures you're under um, because lean is not for everybody. 
but right. improvement is for everybody, right? Yeah. Um, coming to terms with the fact that, you know, you're not Toyota. In fact, you know, you're a call center, you know, like the level of precision you have to have when you're manufacturing a vehicle that, you know, like that's about safety at that point. You know, you're going to drive this Toyota Camry at 70 miles an hour. Um, there's a, a level of precision that has to happen there that just isn't relevant to some industries. Um, and, and kind of being, you know, one of the things I like about streamlining function and value is that applies, period. You don't have to have um, the Toyota production system in place in order to utilize this tool and this methodology to analyze your value creation process and, you know, see improvement. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I mean, we need to make sure our organizations realize that Toyota has been doing this for 70 years. Yeah. They and they're still 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 working on it. I mean, it's not a perfect system. It, it's continual because there's always going to be changes uh, needed. And so you sh and I think one thing about um, TPS or Lean is that you got to make whatever continual process that you are using make it as your own. It, if you find like a, a tool or a methodology doesn't work, you don't necessarily have to do it. Maybe you might want to have to come back at it um, in a, at a different time when uh, your organization may not be ready for it. But you have to definitely make that as your own and make changes to your methodology as needed, for sure. Yeah. Uh, one area where I coach folks in organizations is, you know, don't copy tools. Um, don't copy methodology. What you need to copy is philosophy. You need what you need to copy is culture. You know how you think as a company and leadership. If you understand the theory, then you'll you'll know what and how to apply. Um, I remember working for a company that had a, a root cause analysis tool that they had. Um, standardized across the whole company. So, you know, a, a root cause analysis um, process is kind of a means of capturing uh, learning and structuring your thought around an undesirable outcome to make sure you're not missing anything. Um, the problem was this form was designed for a highly sensitive uh, production line. Um, it was a chemical mixture uh, production line that meant that the root cause analysis had to encompass a significant amount of detailed analysis um, in order to ensure safety as well as accurate uh, root cause analysis. And it was very robust and uh, well designed and, and somebody kind of in corporate leadership that, you know, maybe maybe didn't quite understand the tool of the purpose, um, they made it the default document for the entire company. And we're, we're talking about a multi-billion dollar international company here. Mm -hmm. uh, so meanwhile, over here, you have the, the group in the company that, you know, hammers pallets together so that they can ship product out on them and mm -hmm. something goes wrong and they've got to fill out this form that 
you know, looks like it's somebody's engineering master's thesis. Um, you know, so that's an example of like the, the tool just doesn't fit. But if you understand the theory, you can pick a tool that works, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, most definitely, um, especially uh, when you're looking at, you know, like you said, the philosophy, um, make it simple. I, I, over and over again, if you make it too complicated, people are not going to want to use it and they're not going to use it. If they don't have no want to use it, they're not going to use it. So that's why you need to make it simple, make it easy and accessible to people to have these tools to be able to operate and make decisions towards themselves and make better um, better producers as they work. Yeah. Uh, this this comes up like every time we have a podcast, you know, um, I think it's coming more to the forefront in operational excellence and lean consulting, which is this idea that at the end of the day, it's all psychology. You know, it's all about people and influencing humans, but um, not not everybody gets that. You know, when I look at rocky lean implementations or even I don't like to use the word failed because we're dynamic. Businesses are always changing. It's an infinite game. You know, it's not there's no rules. So it, if it's not working, just change the rules, change the game. Um, but basically failed lean implementations. A lot of the time, that's an organization that has a top down authoritarian structure that just said, OK, Everybody's lean. We're going to use this tool. We're going to do it this way. And, you know, it's it's not effective because that culture is not effective. And that's why I encourage organizations like don't copy the tools. You have to copy the methodology or, or, or not the methodology, the psychology. You have to copy the way that they're thinking about how to run the business, understand the philosophy. Mm -hmm. And then you can choose the methodology and tools that will get you where you're you're trying to go. Um, so yeah, great, uh, great point. And I call it the uh, engineer's dilemma, but it's when you know that something is the best way to do something, but nobody else does. Um, <laughs> it, it, right. It's a real thing. Like it happens. Um, and people are irrational and we're emotional, you know, creatures and sometimes the team. And, and so you just have to focus on what's the next best step. Yes, you should be doing it this way. And and I'm right about that. And I know I'm right. But you know what? That's not going to get better business outcomes. But what is the team going to accept that they can do right now that gets them a little closer? Right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, even though you might have the direct answer, you're not actually the person that's going to be doing that action or activity uh, for eight, 10 hours a day. So why should you have the, the decision making towards it? Actually, you know, good, good leadership is those who have the idea, who actually know uh, the answer and the solution to it are actually those who um, give innovation and develop uh, initiative towards other people to have their ideas um, presented that is the correct answer or the proper way of doing things. And that's what makes change management so interesting is being an influencer towards the people so that they can actually think for themselves and be like, oh, this is the idea. And you kind of just 
plant that seed into those employees' heads and they actually come up with the idea. And since it's now their idea, now they actually want to do it and implement it. And that makes the change management process so much easier when you are implementing um, that kind of leadership. Yeah, definitely. Influential leadership and, you know, the, the managers that I've worked with that are really skilled, um, they have the skill of letting you have your idea, but steering it until it's congruent with what you know is best for the team, right? Mm-hmm. right. Um, and there's some good, you know, tactics and, and tips and tricks and how to do that. I've read some pretty good stuff and, you know, the internet's really awesome. Like. I was talking to um, somebody the other day and I said something like, you know, I know humanity is doomed because we have 100 percent of the world's known knowledge in our pocket, you know, and we're looking at cat videos, you know, and Russian <laughs> dash cam videos. You know? uh, but if you can avoid getting distracted, um, there's some really good learning on YouTube and LinkedIn learning and, you know, some other um platforms out there and uh, the psychology of influential leadership um, and servant leadership. There's some some good tips and tricks on how you can uh, kind of steer people. You want them to discover on their own. We call it the Socratic method. Um, and sometimes we have to accept an improvement that, you know, isn't the best choice, but it's a, it's in the right direction because at the end of the day, I've never met anybody yet. They might be out there, but I haven't met them that learns from somebody telling them something, mm-hmm. right? You can pair it, you can repeat, but you haven't learned it. So, um, you know, going back, back to math class, right? Set the derivative to one or whatever. Well, you can hear that and you can mechanically go through the steps and you can spit out the the answer, but you don't understand it until you really do it. Yeah, definitely. And I also think that people learn by asking questions. You can never ask too many questions. And and you'll see in value engineering, we ask a lot of questions and it might be annoying, but we're not engineers. We don't we don't have the answers. We don't know anything really. And we want to have the answers. We want our team to have the correct answers and the only way to do that is by asking questions. Yeah. And, and questions not only get at the facts, right. But also provide clarity. And, Mm -hmm. you know, many times the person answering the question learns as much as the person asking the question, you know, because you know what, I never really thought about it, but now that I have to communicate it to somebody else, I have to clarify my own thoughts. And I've seen that, you know, that light switch go off in people's eyes um, as we have these kinds of conversations. And it's really cool. I love that. Yeah, me too. Definitely. I like to post questions on uh, LinkedIn to get people's really thought process really moving and and um, not just be so uh, narrow tunnel vision in, in their processes and how they think. It's just think, you know, more more outside than inside. Yeah. Yeah, we, uh, I think we're pretty good. Like our educational system and our culture is really good at telling people what to think. 
um, maybe not so great at teaching people how to think, um, or even making space for thinking differently. Um, but once you uh, experience it, you know, get a little bit, a little taste of that, you know, how can I think about this this differently? You know, it's like a a gem that you hold up to the light and and it changes color. You know, mm -hmm. as you examine it in different ways. Um, I just I love seeing people learn and grow and and practice and you know you can't uh, you can't transfer that it just has to be experienced and everybody's on that growth path right right absolutely Valerie it's hard to believe that it has been an hour already <laughs> a great conversation I love the fact that you know we had a meaningful conversation about um, improving businesses and culture but it also had some technical elements, which um, is really nice to have on a podcast like this as we you know, reach a broad audience, digging into you know, a little bit more of the engineering side of process improvement, value creation. Thank you for joining us and giving us an hour of your day. Is there anything that you would like to leave the audience with? Well, thank you, John, for having me on your podcast. I hope your your viewers or your listeners um, have uh, got enough information to actually provide some curiosity to actually not just, I'm not saying you have to go out and get my book, but, but look into this process, do some education and find out for yourself. Um, you can reach me if you want to connect with me. You can reach me at LinkedIn. Uh, LinkedIn is Valerie, V-A-L-O-R-I-E, 3201 if you want to connect. Awesome. Ladies and gentlemen, Valerie Hendricks, business owner at Dynamic Empire Consulting, author of Streamlining Function and Value, available on Amazon right now. Valerie, thanks for joining us. Goodbye, everybody. Thank you.